Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street partners with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across the globe to develop community organising strategies and train leaders to build power from within their community. And in 2021, what's left of it, and going into 2022, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action, give hope and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast that dives into the progressive uh, campaigns and issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And I'm I'm laughing when I say that because we're not doing that today at all. Um, It is now December. Well, it isn't right now. I'm taping this on the 30th of November, but by the time you're listening to it, it will be down December. And December is the month in which we start to wrap the year up in all of our various ways that we possibly can before we break on holidays. Um, And so what we're going to be doing this month is we're going to be doing a wrap on the year in state politics with Harriet Ching, uh, the state um, Labor MP for the Eastern Region. We've had Harriet on the last two years, so she'll be back for a third, three-peat. We're going to wrap up the year in federal politics with uh, Annika Wells, uh, uh, the Queensland federal MP for Labor, and... Uh, Josh Burns, the member, the federal Labor member for, I was about to say Melbourne Ports, but it's McNamara now, isn't it? Um, and Annika is the member for Lilly. Um, so they were on last year. They're going to be back on again this year. We're going to do a bit of a wrap of um, federal politics. We're going to do a wrap of international politics with Hayden Monroe, who is um, uh, a campaign uh, consultant in New Zealand, but also was Jacinda Ardern's uh, campaign director in their great landslide election um, just recently. Um, and today we're going to wrap up pop culture because we have had a couple of episodes throughout the year with our good friend Tess Farrell, who we've broken, her and I have broken down a couple of TV shows and films that we thought would be of interest to you. So what we're going to do today, in today's episode, is we're going to break down uh, three TV shows and one film, and then we'll have some recommendations of other shows to watch at the end of the episode. Just thing to, another thing to note for this particular episode, uh, we at the start said to each other that we wouldn't do any spoilers, and for the first two TV shows that we review, there are no spoilers. Then we talk about succession and we eventually just kind of tacitly give away some spoilers. So if you've not watched succession, when we get to that part of the podcast, I would stop listening, go watch succession and then come back and listen to this episode. The fourth thing that we review is the most recent Bond film, No Time to Die, that got released last month. It started out not having any spoilers, but in the end I just kind of needed to get things off my chest, so we ended up having spoilers. We do say in there when we are going to start spoiling things and ask you to leave, but if you just want to make sure that you don't happen to, you haven't seen the latest Bond film, uh, then maybe don't listen to that part of the podcast um, either and then come back and listen to it once you've seen um, Bond. So that's the only only word of warning. There are some spoilers in this particular episode, so and we'll write it in the bio as well. Um, anyway, that's um, that's that's today's uh, episode. Don't uh, forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, let us know by leaving us a review on Apple Podcast and Podchaser. And for all the updates, follow us on Dunn Street at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And let's get to today's episode. Okay, we are taping this one on a warm, sunny, unseasonably humid spring evening on a Tuesday in Melbourne. 
Um, and uh, tomorrow is the first day of uh, summer. Tomorrow is the first of uh, December. And December means for the Socially Democratic podcast, we are wrapping the year up. And uh, I think, as I said in the intro, um, we're going to wrap through four. We're going to do four podcasts that are going to wrap the year up, starting with the, this one, which is we're going to wrap up the year in pop culture. Um, Tess Farrell, who you have heard before because she's been on the show, I think, at least three times. I think right at the start of this year, we um, broke down a couple of um, TV series and then she joined us over the maybe the Easter break or the Queen, no, the Queen's birthday long weekend to talk a bit more pop culture. And we've got Tess back on again today to wrap up the year in uh, pop culture. We're going to break down four in particular, uh, three TV shows and uh, one movie and maybe talk a bit about some other shows you can probably use to get down to uh, watching over the summer break. Tess Farrell, welcome back to Socially Democratic. Thank you, Stephen. It's great to be here. I'm I'm a little bit nervous that I might be the episode following Premier Daniel Andrews. <laughs> you are. Um, but you know what? Like... I'm here for it. I can I can tackle this head on. I'm sure it was a great chat, but this one's might be even better. I don't know. Look at look at this look at this way. Maybe uh, Premier Dan Andrews uh, was the war bar act for Tess Farrell. <laughs> I hope he's tuning in now to listen to like some summer recommendations for what he should watch. I think he will be. I know he's a, um, an avid listener of Socially Democratic. So let's be <laughs> let's be on our best behaviour, shall we? We shall be. Uh, well, I don't, I, it's going to be a bit hard given the um, the subject matter of the TV shows. And I will just say that given the year Victorians had, I know a lot of your listeners are Victorian. I have binged so much TV this year, as have you, as has every Victorian. So it was actually really hard to come up to narrow down. Well, A, to remember mm. what you've watched. And then B, once you realise actually how much you have consumed, to narrow it down to, to just four. So I think we're we're doing well and uh, hopefully the listeners will will like what we have to say about this particular show. Well, I guess we've picked um, t- three TV shows and one film um, because they kind of basically fit into the Tess-Steven Venn diagram because these are the ones that we we were we, we enjoyed or we certainly have thoughts on and... Uh, we've both obviously watched um, and we're bringing it to our listeners for you to consider as well if you haven't already. What do we Now, one thing we did talk about before the show was spoilers. How are we going to approach spoilers for this particular podcast? No spoilers. No spoilers? So you're going to get a very basic rundown. In my – I'm not going to give away any spoilers because I hate that. Okay. I will then have to t- – t- um, change my my uh, analysis of the Bond film. Okay, very good. Right, the four things we're going to preview today are uh, you are going to break down White Lotus, which we'll do first. Uh, then we're going to talk about only murders in the building. Then we're going to talk about Succession, even though it hasn't finished, but we just wanted to talk about it because we wanted to, and I just I would like to talk about it. I need to get things off my chest. And then we were going to jump off of TVs and onto film and basically the only really big film that we've been waiting for for literally since April last year, which is the 25th Bond, No Time to Die. So that's what we're going to talk about today. But at the end of the show, we'll have a couple of other, I guess, suggestions of things you should check out as well. But um, without any further ado, let's get straight into it. Uh, Tess, over to you with White Lotus. I think out of all the shows we are talking about today, 
this one was the most watched, in my opinion, most widely watched by a range of my friends and family, completely anecdotal. So it's an HBO show. It's written and directed by Mike White, who his only other credits that I can really find was that he wrote The School of Rock, which I love. Great mm. movie. Yeah. The one with Jack Black. So it's six hour long episodes. You can watch it in Australia on Binge or Foxtel. Um, it's a dark comedy. It's very dark satire set on a very fancy five-star resort in Hawaii. It's got an all-star cast. You've got Connie Britton from Friday Night Lights, Jennifer Coolidge, who's the bend and snap, now salon woman from Legally Blonde, Steve Zahn, who's in everything, Jake Lacey, who's in the US version of The Office, Sydney Sweeney, who's a young woman, young actor in Euphoria, and Murray Bartlett, who's um, an Aussie actor who's been in actually quite a few things, but it's not hugely famous. So the show is really... Like a lot of shows these days, it's a true ensemble cast. It's a show about wealthy Americans going to stay at a resort in Hawaii. And it's sort of like a whodunit. So you find out very early on that someone dies at the resort that they go to. And then it works backwards and um, it goes back to tell, tell the stories of when the guests arrive. So basically all the way along, um, you're finding out about the guests. There's a newly married couple. There's a wealthy CEO and her family. Um, an older single single woman who's played by Jennifer Coolidge. Um, so it's not just the really wealthy American guests, it's also the staff that work there as well and how they handle um, the guests who are ridiculous, very demanding and very privileged. Um, it's very dialogue heavy and you really get to know the backstory of each character and all the problems they're trying to have. Um, and so while the guests are trying to relax in paradise over the week, so it's shot over a week, um, all sorts of things go wrong. Um, and the whole time you're trying to work out who it is who died and how they died. Um, and it was definitely one of the most interesting shows that I have watched uh, this year. It definitely drew me in um, and kept me interested. I mean, this the cast is amazing. So Connie Britton and Steve Zahn, um, who played Nicole and Mark. So Connie's this rich... CFO and her husband is like not the breadwinner and so all the baggage that comes with that um, and her teenage kids come with her and it's this really great relationship between her daughter, her college-age daughter um, and Connie Britton. Then you've got Jennifer Coolidge who's Tanya and so she's an older woman, she's single, pretty sure she's got an alcohol problem. Her mother's just died and she's come to spread her ashes in Hawaii. The newly wed couple um, are played by Jake Lacey and Alexandra Dadiario, and that's Shane and Rachel. Um, and he is this super obnoxious, wealthy dude bro, like typical American backwards cap. Um, as soon as he gets there, complains that he doesn't have the honeymoon suite and he's pretty sure his mum paid for it. <laughs> so he instantly pisses off the resort manager who's played by Murray Bartlett, his name's Armand, and he's the... Um, He's a resort manager who's struggling with an addiction problem and who hilariously takes the piss of guests um, throughout the entire show, but especially of um, Jake Lacey's character, Shane. Um, and, it, I mean, pretty bloody famous cast. Mm. Did you enjoy it? I did. Look, I, I you know, never judge a, a book by its cover. When I first saw the cover, I just thought, oh, this looks shit. And I don't really want to watch this. And my partner was the one that said, no, let's give it a go. And I really liked it. I got drawn in on it. And when I did see the cast, I went, oh, okay, this is interesting. Um, there's some pretty solid 
names here of good quality actors. I mean, Connie Britton, I love Connie Britton. Um, I could watch Friday Night Lights, you know, every Friday night if I could. If I could just forget what happened in Friday Night Lights so I could go back and just re-enjoy it again. It's one of those TV series and Connie Britton's crit- critical on that. Was it you that told me that there's a Twitter account that's called Connie Britton's Hair that is just photos of Connie Britton having amazing hair? Anyway, um, so I love the relationship between uh, Connie Britton and, and, and Steve Zahn's uh, character um, and the kids. <laughs> the dialogue is very good. Um uh, and the Jake, Lacey, uh, the Shane and Rachel, the newlywed couple, uh, they were my favourite. You were right. I mean, he's just hes just a prick, but I just loved him so much. He just acted it so well. It was, it was killing me the whole time. But I was thinking about it today, actually, and, and I was going, because I'm actually booking, we're trying to book a combination right now for a trip, hopefully, that we can take in the new year. And you just know when you scour all of the websites for the accommodation, the kind of room you pick. And if you don't get that room, you can be a little bit pissed off. And in retrospect, I'm kind of falling on his side again going, mate, I paid for the, I paid for the honeymoon suite, but he's such a loser. His mum paid for the honeymoon suite. Um, so anyway, that, 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 that putting that to one side, I just, the characters are very endearing, even in their own pathetic kind of way. And I just, I love that about the show. Yeah, I, it's, it's funny because they are so wealthy somehow you manage, besides from Shane, the dude bro, you do manage to feel a little bit of sympathy. I don't know if it's empathy, but sympathy for them. I just, I, I was drawn by the cast because I'm obsessed with, I'll Google everything um, about a show before I watch it. But I think the best part about it is that you think you're sitting down to watch this sort of lighthearted comedy, you know, it's got Steve Zahn in it, it's going to be funny. But then you end up, to be honest, halfway through, I was like, "What am I watching here?" Yeah. And then I got to uh, then I got to the end, and I was like, "Okay, it wasn't a straightforward comedy. It wasn't a straightforward who done it." But I ended up thinking a whole lot about privilege and race and wealth, and I liked the way that it was kind of done very subtly in a way, I guess. Um, the contrast between what the guests experience and what the staff experience is 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 really good, but it's done with humour that you don't really realise how much you're learning or taking in about sort of white privilege um, until the very end. And to be honest, the ending is very bleak. I won't give away any spoilers, um, you know, and not really much changes. It's not some revolutionary piece of television. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the wealthy people stay wealthy and the people that work there they stay working there mm. <laughs> if they're lucky. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I kind of liked that it was a it was a dark comedy where you thought you, it, it caused you to think a little bit more about what you're watching. Yeah, and there were some scenes that really stood out for me um, that just drove it home. The, the scene when Connie Britton's character uh, crosses paths, uh, is it Nicole, crosses paths with... Alexandra uh, Daddario, or how, how do you pronounce her surname? I think you said it properly. I, I think it's Daddario. 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 Uh, yep. Rachel, when they, there's two key interactions that they have, and the second one isn't great. Um, and I just found, you know, that it, 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 it's putting the characters into difficult positions a lot, and that I think hooks you in, and the way that they do interweave, because I guess you know, resort life <laughs> can be like that because you see people, the same people when you first arrive, you might share the bus from the airport to 
to the resort itself. You don't know them, but you see them, right? And then you might spot them at dinner, and then you, or you might spot them if you're taking a scuba diving lesson or something. I'm talking about being the white privileged youngest of five in my family when my mum and dad got the travel bug in the 80s and took me everywhere whilst my siblings missed out on all of that. Um, and I remember seeing that. And I remember doing this stuff in Hawaii. So it really brought it home for me just watching that going, I remember these characters on the trips that I went with mum and dad as a kid. Um, and just the way that the, the writers have weaved those characters to, to interrelate to each other when normally you wouldn't, but it, it, it felt... Um, it felt believable. Does that, does that make sense? That, that that these moments would happen. One of the other ones I loved was the dialogue between um, Steve Zane and his son in <laughs> at the at the pool bar. You know, they're one of those bars that you swim up to. I've always wanted one of those in my in my house, but we, we don't. Dream, me too. Don't have a pool. So that's when you live in Melbourne. First so. problem already. Good luck with that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, where he swims up and has a chat to him about let's go and do some fun things, right? And the kid's got absolutely no intention of doing that. Wants to play video games on his phone. Um, I just think that the, the, the yeah you're right the relationships between the families and the interrelationships that exist between uh, the 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 um, the guests at the hotel and then the relationship that exists between staff and the, and the guests also are all critical to making this um, I think a really successful TV show. Yeah, it's it's really good, and you know the generational divide now. So what would so Sydney Sweeney who plays Connie Britton's daughter is college age like thinks her mum's totally lame for like thinking that Hillary Clinton is a feminist you know and just or you know hashtag me too movement you know there's all this commentary that's like weaved through the dialogue um in terms of I guess gen x between between the gen z I would say Mm. and so I found that really good I mean I myself have gone on a few resort holidays and you know I've always cringed a little bit at the at the sort of guests who think they've made friends with um, the staff there. Like, like the staff there are like genuinely friends with them. Like Tanya, um, like Tanya, who's Jennifer Coolidge's um, character, she makes friends with um, the sort of day spa manager. And it's like this is not a friend. Yeah. Situ- this is this is not a friend or family situation. They are probably paid not very much to be here serving you and um, they probably have children that don't live on this island that they are sending the money back to. So it's always, you know, I I mean, perhaps good intentions, but it's always a bit cringe and that comes out in the show as well, Mm. which which I definitely enjoyed that. Yeah. No, it was very good. Weaknesses? Weaknesses. Um, I did find it could be a little bit slow in parts. Um, as I said, it's really dialogue heavy and a lot of the witty convo was really good, but sometimes it was just too much and it wasn't sharp enough to really keep your attention. So my interest waned a little bit. But having said that, I think what happened was they'd eventually weave in some ridiculous comedic, like out of this world, hilarious to sort of bring you back into it to break mm. up the dialogue but yeah i think it's an hour-long episode you know sometimes i i my attention waned a bit did you have any weaknesses for the show no not really actually um i think because i came into it with really low expectations uh i was just pleasantly surprised and enjoyed it and i think when i when it ended i went oh is that it are we done um it had a real kind of british 1970s in and out, let's just 
get down on paper what we want to say and then we're done. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to drag this thing out. And I thought that that was uh, the efficiency of uh, the writing was um, made it one of its strengths as well. So therefore I, d I didn't really, I couldn't really fault it. The the Australian guy that, um, that uh, Murray Bartlett, who plays Armand, um, I've never seen him before. What what do you know about him? Because at the start I was sort of going, is that an Aussie? Is that an Aussie accent? Because you weren't expecting to hear an Australian accent. And I went, this guy's an Australian. Who is this person before? I've never seen him before. He's definitely Australian. He's done, I reckon, you know, I'm talking back in the 80s, having a wave blue healers, guest right. spot situation. But he was in Looking, which was an HBO show about um, a group of gay friends who live in San Francisco with um, Jonathan Jonathan Groff, I think, um, which is a really good show. I, I enjoy that. That's that's going might be even be ten years old now. But besides from that, I don't think he was anything in anything, not stand out. But mm. he was excellent, and all sort of critical reviews um, really really praised his work. And uh, that was one. I don't have a favourite line from the show, but um, I do have a favourite scene um, in the final episode, which was completely ridiculous. And, in fact, I think it was too much for American viewers. I think it got panned by American viewers. Um, I won't spoil what happens, but it involved Amon, the resort manager, and I just thought he was finally getting some relief or revenge on Shane, the dupe um, which he had clashed with from the beginning. Um, and I thought it was going to end in his way and it, and it and didn't quite but um there's a yeah completely outrageous storyline in the in the finale which was really good mm. um and i thought he was fabulous in that same with jennifer coolidge i think but overall it was an ensemble cast so we, everyone contributed to it steve zahn lost his marbles a little bit in it as well which i <laughs> i really i really enjoyed um and i also enjoyed the music the soundtrack was creepy as it was so weird. It was like tribal and eerie the whole way through. Um, it was almost like the mu the music they play on Survivor, um, which is I found I did a bit of research and found it very funny because Mike White, the creator of the show, actually went on Survivor and was a contestant, and he also went on The Amazing Race. So it's a bit of a reality TV show theme. And then hearing that from you now makes me think that it does have a almost a kind of a dra dramatic Survivor kind of vibe. Um, you know, tropical island, instead of them being sort of set out in the island trying to survive, they're in an opulent five-star holiday resort trying to survive. Yeah, well, I mean, because you know that someone died on that yeah. <laughs> right at the beginning. That's not really a spoiler. You no. find that out in the first five minutes. Um, yeah, it is like who died? It's like Lord of the Flies. If they made Lord of the Flies now, I'd imagine that's what the soundtrack would, would be like. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I was asked to find a social democrat in the show. Yeah. I don't I I've got some thoughts, but I don't think I could find I don't think I could find one, to be honest. Could you find one? I think that uh Nicole, Connie Britton's character, um Yes, uh, maybe Nicole. Is a social democrat. She's a I mean, she's a New York liberal basically, isn't she? Uh and a and a strong feminist from that Gen X generation and there's a great scene uh, with um, that she has uh, when she's typing away on a laptop, and um, the journalist character comes up and has a chat to her, um, which was awkward, um, but great. And that was her kind of, you know, standing up for her feminist values and the th challenges challenges that she's gone through 
over the course of her entire career and basically told the chance to go fuck herself. Um, I thought that was great um, and I thought that, yeah, she's a, just a good centrist social democrat right there. Yes, I would agree with you, but, I mean, in the end they just seemed so self-absorbed and wealthy that you just, you. I found it kind of hard to see that they would sort of not take their own personal wealth as the most important things in their lives, which, you know, if you watch so, you'll end up seeing is sort of the end point for quite a few of those characters. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. They're very wealthy social democrats. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> um, but you're right. And her son Quinn was the only one that really um, sort of indicated that he wanted to break away from the cycle, from his family, thought everyone was not. Yeah. So there's Quinn and, like, he wore an end homelessness T-shirt on the show. So, but, you know, that's what I could come up with. Jake Lacey's character, Shane, absolute Republican. Absolute Republican. Without a like, doubt. he's probably going to run for the Senate if yeah. this was in reality. Yeah, he's probably a Trumper. He's bordering on Trumper. I would say so, yeah. Yeah. And obviously all the staff would be good, you know, left-wing voters and in death, dire need of a union as well, I'd imagine. <laughs> I don't, Yeah. I hope so. Well, I hope they have a union. Tell you what, because some of the conditions I'm working under were well, pretty it, it poor. Is, it is America, so yeah. uh, it's probably unlikely. Mm. <laughs> but all in all, um, a pretty good watch. And a good binge sort of session if you're watching it over summer. Because they're all up there now, so you can just... Uh, so w- remind me, which uh, what streaming service in Australia is that on? So it's an HBO show, so it's on Binge Off Foxtel. Sweet. There you go. Do yourself a favour. Very good. All right. We're making good time here too. We're only a, right. only a minute over. Only Murders in the Building is the next TV series that we are going to review. Um, and the TV show is on uh, Hulu in the United States, um, but I think it was shown on Disney Plus internationally. Is that where you watched it, on Disney Plus? Would that be right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Um, there are series... Season one is uh, ten episodes, and each episode goes for thirty minutes. There are they are they've been contracted and have got the green light for series two, uh, which is exciting. And I felt that as soon as the end of season one ended, that just had series two written all over it. And I reckon they probably got that contract halfway through um, the first season. Uh, it's created by Steve Martin, who is a famous actor and a stand-up comic from the 1970s and 80s and basically in every comedy show in the 1980s that my dad may be watching on a Friday night. Uh, and John Hoffman, who has got nothing um, notable to mention about whatsoever. The uh, the central plot, it follows three strangers playing played by Steve Martin, Martin Short and Selena Gomez, who share an obsession with uh, true crime podcasts and after a suspicious death in their affluent Upper West Side apartment in New York called The Arconia, these three neighbours decide to start their own program podcast covering the investigation of that death, uh, which um, initially is ruled as a suicide by uh, the police investigation. And so the the main characters in the show are Steve Martin, who plays a guy by the name of Charles Hayden Savage, who's a semi-retired actor who was the star of a popular 1990s detective drama series called Brazos. Uh, there is Martin Short, who plays Oliver Putnam, a uh, financially struggling Broadway director um, who spawns the idea of the podcast and becomes its director. Selena Gomez as Mabel um, Mora, who's a young woman who lives um, in the Arconia as well. And um, 
is it's a sort of a refurnished unit that she's renovating for her aunt and who was friends of the guy, Tim Kono, who is the murder victim, but was friends with Tim Kono many, many years ago when they were young. And Amy Ryan is uh, Jan, who's a professional professional bassoonist who also lives in the Arconia and um, starts dating Charles and helping them in their murder investigation for their podcast sort of one third of the way through the uh, the series. Um, thoughts on the characters before we jump into, um, I guess, the strengths. Um, what were your initial impressions of Only Murders in the Building? I loved this show so much. It was exactly, I just, it was perfect. Um, I mean, I think I have a bias because Father of the Bride is one of my favourite movies or the one and two. So Steve, having Steve Martin and Martin Short back together was incredible. Selena Gomez, I mean, Selena Gomez is a millennial, right? Yeah, I think so. So we've got, we've got boomers and a millennial working together to solve a crime. It, it's out of this world but also completely perfect. So I have nothing to say about Only Murders in the Building. Sorry, I have nothing bad to say about Only Murders in the Building. Um, I tried to write down weaknesses and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on it just because um, I thought to myself, what is there not to love about a quirky, well-written, true crime um, uh, drama comedy set in a wealthy apartment in the Upper East Side of New York uh, that follows the capers of three individuals that really don't share a great deal in common except for the fact that they've got an obsession with true crime podcasts. Like it just it just set up so well. It felt like I was reading The New Yorker and but just watching it on television. And uh, I just I kind of got lost in in the drama of it. Uh, it never gets dark or gritty. So the topic of murder, you know, can conjure up images that are obviously not that great because murder, you know, it's, you know, thou shalt not murder. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Um, and uh, it's really light and irreverent uh, with the subject matter. Uh, it delivered on being entertaining. It was really fulfilling. Uh, it gave us what we wanted, you know, um, yet at the same time, this is the bit I liked about it, it constantly kept us guessing. Like it delivered on everything you needed, but at the same time you didn't know where it was going uh, right till the very final scene of the very final episode. Uh, which I thought was very, very um, clever writing. Uh, I thought there were some really interesting ways in which they delivered some of the episodes. There's the episode that was focused on one of the characters who was deaf. So for most of the episode, um, it was from a hearing impaired perspective. So there was no audible dialogue. Um, another episode was from the perspective of Tim Kono. Uh, and I thought, found that quite entertaining and just a bit sort of edgy, which I liked. Um, it was also cool because it took the piss out of podcasts and, it, and the podcasting world and it suggested that any random hack can actually set up one. <clears throat> Hello. Um, okay. uh, and, um, and I thought the character development and the relationship between the three of them was brilliant. And at the point you just made, you know, there's a generation gap between Mabel and the two older blokes. Um, and the rivalry, sort of the pass-ag stuff that was happening in the early days between all of them, but in particular between Charles and Oliver because they're both from a sort of a th- – thespian background um was just it got me right away like there was good laughs at the start and i went oh this is going to be funny um and obviously we all know um as you said we're, we're so familiar with martin short and and um steve martin working together three amigos father of the bride like Mart, there was actually three char- the three characters reminded me of three individual people in real life that don't know each other at all but 
uh, and I've individually told all of them, you need to watch this show because this is you. And I actually want to get these three people together and have lunch and say, you three are these three characters because they were just so um, eclectic. Um, but the way that they became a team over the course of the show was just wonderful. And it's really contemporary because podcasts are, you know, such a contemporary medium of communication now that it, it was a great reflection on um, on society as well and just done it a very cool thing. I just basically any show that's in Paris or New York, I'm just going to like really. Yeah, well, there's a lot of that in, in this podcast episode today, but it, it was perfect. The, the way that they captured the filming of or the recording of the podcast was just hilarious that you had Martin Short driving it. He's like, you got to, you know, we've got to get the numbers up. And, ha- and how it was sponsored by, um, you know, it was called, the podcast title was Only Murders in the Building, sponsored by, you know, something, Chicken Chop or whatever. Yeah. Um, it, like, it was just so funny. And Martin Short is absolutely hilarious. Like, his physical self yeah. um, is just so funny. Um, Amy Ryan, who ends up sort of, dating Steve Martin's character, the bassoonist, um, was also really good. So it had it had a pretty small cast, pretty mm. tight cast. Mm. Um, and the fact that it was mostly set in in a really beautiful building in New York um, made it even even better. But, yeah, you're right, the way that it kept you guessing each episode. You really didn't know who did it right up until the end. Mm. The um, Steve Martin constantly... Carrying, not Steve Martin, uh, Martin Short constantly carrying the boom to record people as they were on the run whilst they're trying. That's the thing about it. That was the absurdity of it is they're trying to solve a murder mystery whilst live recording themselves doing it for a podcast. Like it's just, it is a bit stupid and that's, it's, that's what kind of makes it for me. Um, and that then creates scenarios that lead to great comedy. Oh, so good. And it's definitely got a bit of Wes Anderson vibes, you know, all those characters. It's It was great. I actually didn't know that it was created by Steve Martin. So that's that's incredible. He's a genius. And uh, look, the, uh, the EPs on it is like it was almost like a football team. Um, but Selena Gomez poured money into it, so did Martin Short, so did um, 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 Steve Martin, a whole bunch of others as well. Um, I, I'm interested to get your thoughts on I, – I don't know much about um, Selena Gomez – um, she's not someone that I am very familiar with in terms of her music. I understand that she started out on maybe Disney or, or, or the Mickey Mouse show or some shit like that. Is that, am I, am I getting that completely wrong? The Mickey Mouse show. Jeez, Stephen, come on. Britney's been freed and Christina Aguilera is fine. Selena Gomez did start out on Disney. So she's of the Jonas Brothers era of Disney. So I don't know what's that, mid-2000-ish, late-2000-ish, late yeah. Hmm. Um, she started out in Wizards of Waverly Place and her best mate Demi Lovato was also around at that time and they both acted and they both sung. They're both not from particularly wealthy families. Um, I've always thought Selena Gomez was an incredible actor. She ended up dating Justin Bieber, didn't go down well. Um, broke up. I think she's single now. She now had. She still releases music, which I quite enjoy. I don't know if that's bad to admit as a thirty-three-year-old woman. Um, she produced Thirteen Reasons Why, which is very a very controversial television show um, about teenagers um, and suicide, which was on Netflix. But it was also very popular. So 
I think Selena Gomez is a very smart businesswoman in terms mm. of what she chooses to work on and, and produce. Um, and I also think she's a really good actor. Mm. Um, she also has a makeup line, which I hear is pretty good, but I don't know how you can get it here in Australia. Um, but she was, she was great. She was, well, I don't know. They, all three of them were a standout for me. Yeah, they were. I just wasn't familiar with um, her work and I, I enjoyed it. I, um, at the start I was like, aren't you a singer? Uh, so I, um, immediately I just sort of dismissed her because I just didn't know who she was. But um, over the course of the, sh- um, the series, she really warmed to me and she was, gr- um, she was so critical in, um, I guess, being that if it just been the two old blokes, it wouldn't have worked you needed the younger person as well, I thought. And I thought that worked really, really well. And she was kind of, you know, calling bullshit on on their stuff. But they were also calling bullshit on it. I mean, she didn't know who Sting was. She thought that he was, there was some line in there that she thought Sting was in Coldplay or something like that. And um, Yeah, so, can we talk about the fact that Sting is in this TV show? I know. Well? We're just That's probably the most go. random cameo of all time. I was like, that's not really Sting. I was like, oh, it's Sting. I know. How good was he? He was incredible. How did they get him to do that? I, I don't know. Well, I don't know how many films Sting or TV acting. Uh, none? Sting. No, he was in Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and he was amazing in that. And it's like as if he was oh, like, like going, oh, I've nailed it once, I'm not going to do it again. Kind of, you know, like, you know, um, Herb Elliott at the eight, at, in, the, um, in the, the Olympics, I've won one gold medal, I'm not going to run again. He's, so he's then come back into this and he's just been just as good. It was, so I don't think this is a spoiler, but. You know, eventually the podcasters <laughs> accuse Ding of being the murderer, <laughs> and it's just so comical, and I love it so so much. Um, that's what I mean about every episode having a bit of a twist. You never know what's going to happen, like Sting appearing, yeah, in in a in a particular episode. Um, and it was funny that she didn't know who it was, but Selena Gomez is definitely a better. She's a better actor than she's a singer, but I reckon she's. Uh, Got a big future ahead of her. <laughs> Indeed. Now, favourite, uh, well, other bits, I'll do lines in a moment, but um, any other bits, music, location, costumes? I mean, obviously the location in the Arconia, which I've obviously Googled and found out what is the actual apartment, where it is. It's not called the Arconia, but it is in the Upper 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 East Side and it's really, really expensive to try and, you know, get a property in there. Um, that was great. Uh, I thought, I can't really recall much about the music from memory. Me either. Um, but the actual theme song is a great theme song um, and it is a little bit addictive and gets, it becomes an earworm. Um, and in terms of, I guess, costumes, their clothes are just kind of, you know, they are what they are. It's just sort of, you know, wealthy New Yorkers dressing pretty cool, basically. But we love that, uh, don't yeah, we? Everyone, yeah. all Australians love that. Yeah. We're obsessed with New York culture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Favourite lines... Um, two of them are both from um, Martin Short's character, Oliver. Um, <laughs> he says, rock icon Sting is a dog poisoning murderer. Um, he's like the next OJ, a hot Buddhist OJ. <laughs> 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 Which just, it just sums up his character. His delivery of his lines are just so fucking funny. Uh, he's, the other one that I liked was um, <laughs> Oliver was criticising uh, Steve, Ca- um, Steve Martin's character who was trying to put music together. He says, you were scoring a murder mystery, not G- DJ your Hobbit's wedding, <laughs> which I also loved, um, one of my favourite lines, but I think you've got one too. 
I do, as I said, the relationship between um, the two older men and Selena Gomez's character was my favourite part of the show. And so this is what Mabel says to Steve Martin and Martin Short. She goes, I mean, a murderer probably lives in the building, but I guess old white guys are only afraid of colon cancer and societal change. <laughs> so that was a good one for me. Her dry delivery as well also makes it, I think. Completely dry. Complete, oh. like, pan. She just says it. Yeah. Oh, God. Incredible. The whole time. Uh, the social. Who were the social Democrats in this show? I think that being we're in New York... It's, it's um, who isn't the Social Democrats in this show. Um, my question is, who did they actually vote for in the Democratic primary, Bernie or Biden? I'm going to say they would all vote for Bernie. Do you reckon? Well, Selena would. I mean, sorry, um, Mabel's character definitely would because she's young and for some reason mm-hmm. young lefties seem to dig old white guys these days. Um, I reckon... Uh, I reckon uh, Martin Short's character would vote for Biden. Uh, I would have said Steve Martin's character would have voted for Biden. He seemed a little more conservative, in my opinion. A bit more, bit more moderate. A bit more moderate. Yeah. Very moderate, good. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Are we done with Only Murders in the Building? We are. Everyone watch it. It'll bring great joy to you. It will. <laughs> if, yeah. if 2020... If the joy joy to the world was brought by Ted Lasso in 2020, because I was disappointed with the second season of Ted Lasso, then the joy in the world was in 2021 was brought to us by only murders in the building. Yeah, agree. Done. Over to you. All right. Succession. It's really hard for me not to think the... Oh. Anyway, I'm not going to do it. I, I said I wasn't going to do it, so I'm not going to do it. Okay, so another HBO series... We are currently in the middle of season three. So there are three seasons, smack bang in the middle um, as of today. Um, you can watch it on Binge or Foxtel. Another satirical black comedy from HBO. Surprise, surprise. Yep. Created by Jesse Armstrong, who did Peep Show and Fresh Meat, which are both British shows that I really enjoyed. But he also wrote for Veep, which I think is the most accurate political television show of all time. Hear, hear. Um, so White Lotus, which we were talking about before, is actually often described as a mix between Succession and Veep, which I found hmm. very interesting. So Succession, I don't know anyone who hasn't watched it, but let's let's go for the plot. It centres around the Roy family, based in New York, extremely wealthy, owners of media conglomerate Waystar Royco. So basically it's the Murdochs that... <laughs> Not really the Murdochs, if you're listening, Murdochs. Um, but they're not Australian, they're American. So the main tension of the show is the four siblings fighting it out, hoping their father will retire or die and then make them the next CEO of the business because they have a lot to gain, money and power. So they're all going for the top spot, but their father doesn't seem like he's going anywhere. And he really manipulates them all, in my opinion. Mm. Um, so there's a whole lot of business deals, acquisitions, controversies surrounding the family. Um across seasons one and two and into season three. Um, and in the third season, which is on now, um, you've got one of the sons breaking away from the rest of the family following a pretty bad scandal for the company. Um, it's a show about power and wealth and the absolute dysfunction of one family pretty much owned the world's media. Everything from takeover bids, cover up of a death or murder, um, right up to 
sort of how the family influences politics, the president, potential president. It's a great show. Um, I guess the cast isn't particularly known. You've got Brian Cox, who plays Logan Roy, Roy the patriarch, he's getting older, has some health issues, so he's a dad. Got Jeremy Strong, who plays Kendall Roy. He's his second eldest son. He's like a, you know, he loves the Beastie Boys. He's, he wants to take the business into digital, you know, he's sick of traditional media. Sarah Snook, Adelaide girl, shout out to her. Mm. Um, he plays Siobhan, the only girl. She's marginally more progressive than the, than the others. In the second season, she worked for a Bernie Sanders-like politician. Kieran Culkin, who plays Roman Roy, the youngest son, He's the most outrageous and reckless, in my opinion. Mm. Um, Alan Ruck, who plays Connor Roy, the elder son um, from Logan's first marriage, and he's a black sheep, and they all take the piss out of him. He's hilarious, ends up running for president in the third season. Nicholas Braun plays cousin Greg, <laughs> who's their young cousin, who just comes to work for the business. He didn't grow up with him or anything. Um, he didn't grow up wealthy either. He's the joker, comic relief. He's a moron. Matthew McFadden, who plays Tom Wamsgam. His ship's husband, who's, I think, my favourite character. Jay Smith Cameron plays Jerry, the company's general counsel. Peter Friedman plays Frank, the COO, and eventually vice president of the company. Mm. Um, I haven't met someone who doesn't like the show. Have you? Uh, no, I no, I don't. I it, yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. One thing I do want to say is if yeah. we if we can go back through the characters before we do strengths. Mm. Uh, Brian Cox, uh, who plays Logan Roy, uh, who I just love. Um, I don't think that he's um, a classically trained actor. He's from Scotland, uh, originally from Dundee. Um, he's done a lot of sort of um, um, West End um, acting, but also has been in um, The Long Kiss Goodnight. Um, he was um, the Uncle Argyle in Braveheart, um, who wasn't in Braveheart if you're Scottish. Basically everyone, every Scottish actor got a gig in Braveheart. <laughs> Um, and, um, he was in one of the, he was in the early born series, um, but is just fantastic. Uh, Jeremy Strong was, um, in, you would have remembered him from the big short, um, the yeah. Steve Carell's group of data analysts and, um, stockbroke people. He was one of those guys. Apparently he's a method actor. So that means he is acting as Kendall Roy on set. Like once he goes into Kendall Roy, that's it. He's just like that for the entire shooting of it for however long. So this guy really goes deep, deep, deep into Kendall Roy, which would be That's like, a terrifying thought. It really is, isn't it? Because Kendall's character is like a roller coaster, and we'll get back to that later. Um, Sarah Snook, as you did, shout out to Adelaide Girl. If she doesn't play Julia Gillard at some point in the future, I'll be disappointed. She actually looks like Julia Gillard. What? No, she doesn't. Oh, same eyes. And obviously she's got red hair, same nose. It's a different kind of red. No, nah, she's Julia Gillard. I mean, she doesn't look like Julia Gillard, but, you know, she's an actor. You can make her look like Julia Gillard. Like, this has to happen. It's kind of like when I was a kid, I said, Remington Steele has to play James Bond at some point in time, and eventually it did happen. Same with this one. Sarah Snook must play Julia Gillard in an ABC drama series about um, how she was, you know, t- become the first um, woman prime minister. For those who don't know Sarah Snook, she was in The Dressmaker with Kate Winslet. Um, which was a beautiful Australian film, and also A Beautiful Lie, which was a pretty good um, ABC series, drama series. Kieran, Kieran Culkin, younger brother to Macaulay Culkin, 
uh, who I also refer to as um, um, someone who you know, you've met tangentially through um, the Dunstreet US engagement trip, my nephew Callum. We call him Evil Callum. Uh, Kieran Culkin's character is just <laughs> all over the place. Callum, if you're listening, hi. Um, uh, Cousin Greg, arguably the greatest character ever made in the history of modern TV series. Um, Matthew McFadden, who uh, plays, as you mentioned, uh, Tom's uh, Wham's Gam, Gans, who you, you, did, you did a much better job of pronouncing it than I did. Um, His name is ridiculous. Tom <laughs> Wham's Gam. I, and I said to my partner last night, because we watched the most recent episode last night, I said, do you pity Tom? Like, do you have any feeling for him at all? She said, no, I hate his guts. And I didn't say out aloud to her, but I'm now going to say it out aloud to, you know, all eight people that listen to this show. I do, and I don't know why. And I guess that's the thing, isn't it, about this show, is, like, they're all pricks, except for poor old cousin Greg. Um, anyway, there you go. there's some other thoughts I wanted to have on the characters before we went into I'll let you go back to the strengths. Oh, a note for some people who might find this interesting. Matthew McFadden was the, um, he's actually English, and he played Mr Darcy in the Kira Knightley version of Pride and Prejudice. And was um, in Spooks. Which, which is wild to me that this moron could play Mr. Darcy. He was in Spooks. He was like a mad killer MI5 agent that, you know, just didn't take no shit. I think going back and looking at this, like they're not wildly famous actors, are they, right? But they are so talented and mm. that's how this show lifts. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, the, it's, their act, it's the writing and the acting, which is what I love the most about the series. The writing is spot on. It's perfect. You know how I was saying before with White Lotus that sometimes I got lost in the heavy dialogue and mm. the, the sort of witty banter? I, I don't get lost in this way. They are so awful to each other. The dialogue between the characters is so good. You know, they're not doing anything, you know, particularly interesting. They're probably just sitting in a private car or on a private plane or on a yacht. But the banter that they have, um, the insults that they <laughs> trade with each other, um, is so good that you, I just can't look away. And it didn't muck around either. Season one um, with um, Logan, things happening to him early, it was kind of like it already threw the cat amongst the pigeons and it just set it up. Um, so it wasn't like a, you know, some series take a while to kind of get to where it wants to go, but it was like within I think episode one or two, bang, you're away. Um, by the time that you're having um, – um, uh, Kendall trying to, you know, make moves on the on the business. That scene in the um, when he was flying back from wherever the hell he was, and he gets stuck in the in the Lincoln Tunnel, uh, Iceland or something. Yeah, uh, and there's this, you know, there's the board meeting, and he's trying to, you know, corral the numbers, and they're all falling apart while he's on the phone. Like that, just from that moment on, that show changed for me, and I was like, oh, I'm now hooked. Like this is gripping television, and I need to be a part of this. Um, I think I'll, every week. I, I think also there is some sort of deep sort of fascination with the Murdochs as well, that even though this is completely not, I mean, there are similarities, like how they influence politics um, and what they own and, you know, they end up before testifying before Congress, like they're being investigated for doing dodgy stuff, you know, in the same way the Murdochs did with the um, uh, phone taping scandal. And so I think that also keeps you drawn in. You're like, I wonder how similar this really yeah. is to real life. I think that also keeps you really drawn in. Um, and I don't know, I think I hate all the characters. I, I can't find 
sometimes I feel sorry for Kendall. Oh, season two, the second half of season two from the wedding onwards was just, he was just a, he was a shell of a man, of the man he was. Completely destroyed and none of the characters have any self-awareness, so... That's particularly hard to watch. Yeah, the old man, <laughs> the, the, the old like the old man is a prick. He's all of the worst parts of a Scottish father. Um, uh, he uh, the 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 sibling rivalry between the main three siblings. Let's forget about um, Con Con um, for a moment. Is um, you know they're just it's sometimes it's ruthless, but sometimes it's just childish and petty and just pathetic. Um, the the relationship between Greg, cousin Greg, and Tom is hysterical <laughs> and bizarre. The Bucks party episode was just oh yuck! Oh, mm-hmm. oh yuck is the word. <laughs> yuck is the word. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it's just. Oh, look, we're about to get to weaknesses, but I just um, and just the wealth. Like we are. Let's be honest. We're all living vicariously through these pricks. Because each week we're either in friggin' on a yacht in Croatia and you can't wear your shoes on the bloody timber because, you know, the old duck will crack the shits with you. Or, you know, we're at some friggin' country villa going, you know, game hunting. It's just, or we're just riding down, you know, Fifth Avenue in New York. It's just the wealth, the watch scene in the first season with the kid and if he hits a home run and, you know, just, they're just pricks about it. It's just, they're just shit people, but it's just, you can't, we we feel like we're um, voyeurs into this world. Yeah, I mean, I I find it really hard to find a weakness in the show at all. Um, I think season three, which, as I said, we're halfway through now, is a little bit slower. Two shows, two episodes to go if you're up to date. Oh, more than halfway through, two episodes to go. So here's my question to you. How do you think season three is holding up compared to season one and two? It's too slow for me. Mm. It's not season two. I was gripped, like <laughs> counting down the minutes to the next episode. Yeah. And maybe it's because it's been two odd years since the last season, so I'm just less in tune. But I feel like there's not enough variety in this season, so there's not enough different shit happening. Um, but I am loving the siblings, the sibling rivalry, or continuing, and also sort of. The deterioration of the health of um, Brian Cox's character Logan. Um, I am finding that, but for me, season two was the winner out of them all. Yeah, I agree. I'm not enjoying season three as much. Maybe, and maybe it's kind of like Coldplay's first album was really good. Coldplay's second album was even better. So therefore, we thought Coldplay's third album was going to be brilliant, but it really wasn't. Um, and are we suffering from that because our expectations got so much higher? Yeah. But I don't think they, I don't know if they knew where to go after the cliffhanger at the end of season two with Kendall. Um, and I felt like season two, they've just been kind it feels like they're kind of just chasing to work out how do we land that? And now they've kind of landed it because the deal is kind of done. You know, that was, that, that was, we were on the clock for that, right? Because how, how, you know, the, 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 the shareholder meeting was the moment where things had to be sorted. Yeah. That's what, it, there's nothing to strive for anymore. I mean, you've got Shiv gunning for top spot, which is a pretty good plot line. Um, 
the tension between Jerry and Roman, <laughs> which I find very fascinating. Um, but you're right, we're not pushing. There's not a huge like explosive ending. It can't get any worse than it is right now. So, and the we'll see how it ends. The dialogue as well is giving me the shits a bit. I think that sometimes it's getting a little bit kind of just sort of throwaway lines. Um, um, how do I mean? Like uh, particularly the lines that have been written for Logan. Um, maybe I'm looking for too many specifics, but sometimes that when there's a problem and they're sort of thrown to the old man, how are we going to fix it? He'll just have sort of generic kind of, uh, we'll just win. And I'm kind of going, no, that's not, that's not good enough, you know? And maybe that's deliberate, but it, maybe it's trying to show that he's kind of a bit out of date and his old ways of running a business where he just basically bullies others into submission isn't working anymore. Um, but I just found it, I'm getting frustrated with it. The other thing I'm getting frustrated with, which maybe is deliberate and it should go somewhere, is the way that he treats Siobhan. Like, I would have told him to go root a boot, you know, four episodes ago um, when they were celebrating the, I think it was two episodes ago when they're celebrating with the champagne mm. and she kind of wanted to share this moment of, you know, victory for the company and he'd just come out of basically a freaking coma and cracked it at her. I was like... Oh, mate, like I just saved your bacon here. You don't get to do that to me. I mean, you say that now, but if she, <laughs> she, she wants that a lot to lose, you know, she wants to be top dog. So wouldn't you just sort of suffer in silence, get over it? Yeah. And, the, and literally wait till he dies. Well, no, because there are. there is the option of, and they're sort of dangling this carrot, isn't it? Is it, do they all, do they go with Ken? Or do they stick with the old man? I think at the end of the season they're all leave. Like they'll be like, no, we hate you. You're a shit dad. We're out. And it's th- like that last night's episode really you could see the, 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 the threads of the relationship between all of them is really starting to fray. I thought last night's episode was one of the better ones of the season. Worst party ever. <laughs> Didn't want to be there, but that's what it was so gripping about it because it was such a shit party. Like when Kendall said, oh, I want to go home, I was like, yeah, man, you get you get home and you, you get under that 18 blanket and you get a cut off from your girlfriend because you have had a terrible, terrible time. You are in a bad, bad way. Mm. Um, but we shall see. We shall. Um, I don't have a favourite line from the show or this series. Every line that Greg ever utters is the, the favourite line is my takeaway. <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, my The thing that's seared into my brain, in fact, I think about it probably three times a week, is um, in season two, Kendall, the second el- eldest son, who's probably, I don't know, the, the most into sort of taking over the business. Um, he does a rap. Oh, that is so bad. He does a rap about his dad at a celebration for his dad at a black tie gala. Like he does a rap. He He's like a 40-year-old man and he gets up at a black tie gala and he does uh, a rap about his huge mogul dad and it's the most embarrassing thing I've ever seen. I think about it all the time. And it lives rent-free in my head. (laughs) (laughs) I hid behind the couch when that happened. Yeah. It was so embarrassing. It's so embarrassing. That's what I mean about these people having no self-awareness about, like, 
how stupid they are. Funnily enough, thinking about when you the, the moments that you do root for the characters, maybe when they were in uh, when uh, Kieran Culkin's character was stuck in Turkey or wherever the hell it was, you're like, oh, this is a situation you really want to get yourself out of. Oh yeah, for sure. Mm. I think I'm going to go back at the start of the um, the introduction to the entire podcast and point out that we may have some spoilers in this <laughs> in the succession uh, recap, um, but we're just based on the fact that if you haven't watched it, you, you know, don't. And as in watch it and come back to this episode. I'm going to put that at yeah, the start. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to put that at the start. Okay. Good call. Good. Okay. Uh, Social Democrats in the show, any? Uh, zero. None. Come on, none. There are none in this show. Shivroy did work for a Democrat. Yeah, but she, she made, she had a choice and she came back, she came back to daddy. So mm. <laughs> she, um, yeah, she, she worked for a, yeah, a Bernie Sanders like politician, but then she left. So, so that's it. That's it. There, there are none. I can't think of anyone, especially not Connor. No. <laughs> oh, con con. <laughs> Um, no, I wouldn't say any of them are social democrats. Very good. Okay. Are we ready for the last thing to review? Yes, we are. All right. We're doing a film now as opposed to a TV series and the film is No Time to Die, which is the 25th Bond in the Eon Productions, which is done by the Broccoli family. There are two other Bonds and there's two other Bond films that weren't um, proper official Eon made one so this is the 25th one from them and it's the fifth and final bond film that stars daniel craig playing um the world's most famous um secret spy 007 um, and it completes a period of five bond films that were essentially sequels from the very first of the daniel craig films Dan, um, casino royale that came out in about 2008 i think followed by quantum Sol- uh, quantum of solace skyfall spectre and then concludes with no time to die which is unique to the Bond films because Bond films are traditionally standalone films. They don't link to the next one. Whereas these, so from 1 to 20, they were standalone films, but for these ones, they actually basically have been sequels and the character continues to develop, which has been interesting. It was directed by uh, Kerry uh, Fukunaga, who did True Detective, among many other things, Uh, and it was written by Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who had been writing all the Bond films since The World Is Not Enough, which is the very last of the... um, Pierce Brosnan Bond films, but also one of the other writers was Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who um, wrote um, Fleabag. Fleabag? Yeah, Fleabag. Yeah. Probably the best comedy written in the last five years. Yep. Yeah, definitely. So uh, the central plot, I have to rechange my central plot notes because there's spoilers all through it and I'm just going to have to rewrite it, which basically uh, would read that it starts off with uh, a young Madeline Swan who is um, was the character from um, uh, Spectre witnessing a murder of her mother by a guy called uh, Lucifer Saffin. Um, and she is the daughter of Mr White who plays uh, a character through all of the previous Daniel Craig films. Um, and then we cut to um, Bond and Madeline Swan who are basically in vacation in Italy. Uh, Bond has decided to retire at the end of uh, Spectre and he's on retirement and we see that kind of life of him hanging out and chilling out and doing nothing. Uh, but then he gets drawn back into uh, active service when he, um, when a bomb goes off. Um, and then we see, we fast forward five years later, there's a deadly bioweapon that's been stolen by um, the British Secret Service. 
um, by a guy called Safin, who's the villain, and he's going to use this um, bioweapon to basically kill as many people in the world. And the plot follows Bond across the world to try and uncover this weapon and the scientist that um, was behind it. There you go. I did a bio, I did a um, recap without doing any spoilers. Good job. Thank you. Uh, the characters Daniel Craig, James Bond, 007. Uh, Rami Malik plays the villain, Safin. Uh, Leah Sadu uh, plays Dr. Madeline Swan. So it's first, I guess, what you call a Bond girl that has reprised the role into the second film. Uh, Lashana Lynch plays Nomi, who was another double O agent from um, MI6. Um, ben Wishaw plays Q, who's the quartermaster. Christopher Waltz, who we all know from Inglorious Bastards, plays uh, Blofeld, also reprising the role from Spectre. Anand Armas plays Paloma, which is a CIA agent. And Ray Fiennes plays M. Right. Now, where do you want to go with this? Do you want me to talk about strengths and weaknesses? Or do you want to give me your initial thoughts on the, char- well, on the characters? Well, I just, full disclosure, this is the first Bond film that I have seen. The last one I saw had Halle Berry in it. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure Pierce Brosnan was that Bond, mm-hmm. right? Correct. So I have never seen any of, I mean, I maybe might have seen one Daniel Craig one, like just on free to wear or something, like watching it vaguely. I've never seen them on purpose. Um, and I hate Daniel Craig. Okay. What a shitty actor. <laughs> never... um, no, well, I mean, I, I am conflicted about this film a lot because I didn't think it was that great. But then also it was a, it was a, what, a two, yep. two and a half hour film. Longest Bond ever. Longest Bond ever. But I didn't find myself reaching for my phone, which is, the modern day test of mm. whether or not a film's good, right? Yep. So at the end I was like, oh, that was bad. And I was like, was it really? Because I didn't want to look at my phone the entire time. I was kind of wanting to know um, what happened. So I guess I did like it, um, but I know no history about any of the Bond films. So I'm looking forward to learning a little bit more about what you have to say. Okay. Well, then what we can do is I have uh, full disclosure – I'm a serious Bond nerd when it comes to um, this topic. In another life, a good friend of mine and I had a podcast and it was a pop culture sport podcast in the days, in the early days of podcasting. And we reviewed every single Bond film starting from the very first one, Dr. No, all the way through to the, uh, I think at the time it was um, Skyfall had come out. And... The way we did it was we broke it down through the sort of, I guess, the Bond sort of tropes. So we reviewed Bond, we reviewed the plot, we reviewed the villain, we reviewed the Bond girls, we reviewed the gadgets, locations, music. Now we can do a very abridged version of that. And I want to get your take on it because this is interesting because you're watching it as a standalone film, whereas I mm. watched it as the fifth and final of a series of sequels. And I wonder if there are bits in there where you're going, what the fuck does that mean? Um well, yeah, because I was told that you didn't need to watch the previous films. And then a little bit more research, and I, I probably should have watched Spectre before. But annoyingly, you can't get them to watch stream for free. You have to pay for it on Amazon. I was like, no, thank you. And I think Casino Royale as well, the very first of the Daniel Craig okay. F- films. Okay. The plot. Let's start with the plot. I hate overly complicated plots in these films. I think that simple is best. Um, I thought this plot was fine until the final act. 
Um, I don't understand what the – I've got to be really careful because I don't want to give away any spoilers. I don't understand what the rush was. Why, why were we in such a bloody hurry? Like what forced what, – why did we need to – there was no need for this timer to, to happen. Um, and, yeah, this is really difficult to not do without a spoiler. So I thought that in order to do what they wanted to do and achieve something quite landmark, you have to have a pretty good reason to do it. So anyone who's watched, listening to this and has seen the film, you know what I'm talking about. In order to do that, you've got to set up a plot that is plausible and it wasn't plausible and that was the weakness of it. I thought the first two acts of the film were great but this final part, which is monumental, is the most monumental moment in the history of the Bond franchise and I thought that the plot device to cause this moment was really, really poor and I walked away feeling um, uh, like there was something missing. Yeah, I mean, I thought the whole last part could go, <laughs> essentially. It was, like, it was too, like, long. We weren't that invested in it in the end, I don't think. Um, and, I, and the first, the opening scene was incredible. I was enthralled. I was terrified. Like, I actively yelped in it because yeah. I had no idea what it was. I was terrified by Rami Malek, who plays the villain. Um, I thought that was great. But, yeah, the end, it seemed too much, and... I mean, I know I'm a Bond, um, I don't know anything about Bond films at all, but it seemed a whole lot more focused on, yeah, the the romantic, emotional part of Bond. Um, so everything else sort of seemed, I don't know, a little bit useless. <laughs> what did you think about the on-screen romance between Bond and Madeline Swan? In the, no, actually, before I, hear, before I say that, I'll hear your answer and I'll tell you what other people think. Oh, well, it was non-existent. Mm. Basically, I thought that Daniel Craig was, like, I thought Leah Sado was his, like, daughter. I thought the chemistry was, like, not there at all. I, I was like, what's happening? Does he know her? Like, it honestly felt like a dad taking out his young daughter on a holiday. It really wigged me out. There was no chemistry whatsoever, and I feel like you feel this way too. Mm. So having said that, there was so much plot line about him loving the Bond girl, so Mad- Madeline Swan. Yeah, I didn't believe it in any way. I didn't believe that she loved him. I didn't believe that he loved her. Mm. And so it ruined the whole film for me. I was like, this is pointless. The, bit is, the biggest criticism from Spectre was um, that there was no on-screen chemistry between Bond and Madeline Swan, and yet they brought her back for the final one and repeated the same mistake. The other mistake that they did was um, Christopher Waltz, who they cast for Blofeld. Blofeld's a very famous villain. He's the head of Spectre and that character has been played by a whole bunch of different actors, including Tally Savalas in the earlier films, um, both um, Sean Connery and um, and Roger Moore Bonds. Um, and Christopher Waltz is an incredibly talented actor and you would think on paper that he would be able to play this character and he just didn't land it. He himself said, I just stuffed it up i didn't i just didn't get it i didn't do it well enough and they brought he it. admitted that yeah that's crazy but it, it was also the scene it was such a tiny scene he wasn't the main villain you know you could you didn't need him such a such a good actor yeah did you really need him in that part no n- not at all and to the point that we didn't really get to know um uh, Rami Malek's 
villain character, Safin, well enough. I thought that, to your point at the start, the opening scene was haunting, like it was scary. And Kari uh, Fukunaga, uh, he's, he, I think he directed it or he was involved in the, the, the filming of it, the Stephen King thriller. And you can see that he's brought that type of direction into the, um, the filming of that opening part because it was gripping, you know. Um, I was shit myself. Um, and I saw it on IMAX. Mm-hmm. I was really shit myself. Um, and uh, so that was a great introduction to that villain. But then we didn't see the villain again for another hour later or something. And no character development. And you can't just chuck a phony Eastern European accent and some um, scar makeup on someone and say, right, you're a Bond villain. There has to be some depth to it, you know. The Bond villains that worked the most in certainly the Daniel Craig era, the Mads Mikkelsen uh, character, which was Le Chiffre in Casino Royale and um, uh, Raul Silva um, played by um, Javier Bardem in Skyfall, are amazing. Like they are just, you know, they're, they're, they're true villains. They're psychopaths. They're going to kill the world. You, but you understand where they come from. You understand why they want to do it. You understand what their motives are. I didn't get what this guy's motives are. Why did he want to take out half the world? I, I just... We never found out that reason. No, and it, I mean, it was very rushed. Any, all the details about him were, were very, very rushed towards the end. And it seems a little bit wild to me that they had all this time to make this new <laughs> Bond movie and that they got it so wrong. In terms of the, those sort of plot lines, like they had ages to work on it. Like couldn't they have made it better? Yeah, and the th- okay, it, I'm trying to think of other things that gave me the shits as well before I talk about some of the things that I, <laughs> that I, that I liked. Um, I think that the, yeah, okay, I'll move to the things that I did like. The, oh, no other thing. So the MacGuffin, which was the, the, the nanobot stuff, I, I have gone back and seen the film twice. I think I'd check if I completely didn't understand it or if they did it wrong. The, the nanobot stuff, the bioweapon was a little bit complicated in the terms of yeah the mass production and distribution bit i was kind of like going how's this supposed to work um that was another thing that i just found a little bit misleading and a bit confusing which i didn't really appreciate but i will say this the pre this pre-credit scene which actually went for 20 minutes before you get the gun barrel uh, sorry before you get the um the the theme music which is the tradition went for 27 minutes that entire scene was fantastic mm. um, which then takes you into it's the norway scene then the matera scene in um, Italy with the car chase in the Aston Martin DB5 and uh, then he puts her on a train and that's the end. That All of that was brilliant right up until the Billy Eilish No Time Did I song and then the, the next scene after that which is um, the scene in basically that ends up him being in Cuba uh, and Jamaica. That was all great. The minute we leave Cuba and the minute we say cheerio to the CIA agent um, Pal- uh, um, Paloma or whatever her name was. Um, Paloma. Pal- yeah, Paloma it kind of, it starts to fall away from that moment. It would be my take. I don't know what your thoughts on that. I mean, let's talk about Paloma for a second. Because that scene in my, you're right. I think you're right. The film could have almost ended there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, That scene with Paloma, who's played by Anna de Armas, was she had chemistry with Daniel Craig. Like she had so much chemistry with Daniel Craig that right up until the final scene, I was expecting her to arrive and blow stuff up Mm. and, you know, come in and save the world. I was like, where did she go? Why was she only there for five minutes? For people who don't know her, she's 
an incredibly beautiful actress. She's Cuban. She dated Ben Affleck for a little while, although a lot of people say it was a PR stunt. And um, she was the lead in Knives Out, which was another movie with Daniel Craig. Um, has Chris Evans in it and, I don't know, random other people. There was that, I was like, what is happening in this film? That was a great mm. scene, the one set in Cuba um, and the one, the scenes leading up to that um, in Jamaica as well. It was all very fast-paced, very quick, and then it just sort of, as soon as we just went back to sort of Bond and Madeline Swan, and just like, mm, boring, I want to go back to Jamaica. Fast-paced, great dialogue for her. I, clearly um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge wrote her character um, because there was just good gags and it was an old and y- old person, young person kind of repartee, like piss off old man, I'm not here to, you know, don't try and think you can hit on me, like we've actually got a job to do. And mm. um, I really loved that. I just loved that whole scene. And I also liked the scene in Jamaica as well. It was a bit of a throwback, a bit of a sort of a nerd out for Bond people because it was sort of set up like... Ian Fleming, who was the writer of all the Bond books, novels, um, it looked like his house that he wrote. It was meant to look like it, was, it wasn't actually his house, but it was meant to look like the house that he lived in when he wrote all of the Bond um, um, books as well. And that was kind of cool. I mean, that's one of the great things about this film, right? It was the cinematography and the locations where it was filmed. It was it was beautiful when they started out in Italy. Um, just beautiful scenery. How nice it would be to be Bond. <laughs> oh, I know. And that, and by and large, they never get that wrong, you know. Mm. Um, the things that they always get wrong historically are the plot, the vil- which is a pretty big thing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm v- not going back anytime soon to watch the rest of these Bond films. I know. Way. I know. I'll, I'll give you recommendations which ones to see. Uh, okay. the, the villain, a lot hangs on the villain. If the villain isn't villainous enough, then that also is a major problem. Uh, the rest, they just tend to kind of nail they get the music right they get the locations right generally speaking bond is okay i thought that this this wasn't bond this wasn't daniel craig's best performance wasn't his worst um certainly what in on reflection what this has done is across the five films you know bond has sorry daniel craig has recast the role of 007 on a on a new path as opposed to sort of the what sean connery did what um, we won't even mention George Lesmian, he did one, but what Roger Moore did, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan, they've all been different types of Bonds and the Daniel Craig one definitely is a far deeper character um, than previous ones. That he, we see the internal conflict within him. You never really got a sense of that in certainly the Pierce Brosnan ones and anything before that. So whoever takes on the role from now on, it's going to be interesting to see what they do with it because it is far deeper and because it was a sequel, we saw the character arc of Bond from him being a rookie in Casino Royale um, all the way through to him being, you know, a washed-up MI6 agent and everything in between. I know we said no spoilers, but do you want to talk about the ending? I think we have to. And I think it would be good for your mental health if we talked about the ending. Okay, here's what we're doing. We're now going to talk about the ending and there's going to be spoilers. If you haven't seen the film, please stop listening. Please stop listening from this moment now. Okay, Mm. let's go. All right. Pretty big deal to kill James Bond in a film. Yeah, huge deal. Even I understood that having only watched one previous Bond film in my life. Yeah. So basically at the end, Bond dies. He gets blown up. Yeah. 
And I walked – now, okay, every time you leave a Bond film, you normally feel like you're six foot ten and bulletproof, particularly if you're a bloke because, is, you know, that's kind of the impact it has on us because we're wankers, right? And every other one you've walked out of, there's always been a really cool scene at the end. And you're like, yeah, Jimmy Bond, you know, thumbs up. I walked out of this and we went out for dinner afterwards. For the first five minutes, I needed to drown my sorrows in a, in a Vespa martini. Like maybe I had six or seven of them. I was – I was I was malauden. I was just down in the mouth. Like I was like, I can't believe they just killed just James. I can't believe they just killed James Bond. I couldn't even process the stupidity upon which they did do it. That took me a couple of days to sort of, you know, think about. But I was just sort of like, oh my god, did we really need to do that? And I could have felt like the director or the writers. Every other writer that's done all twenty four others didn't do that. Why did you get the right to do that? And that kind of pissed me off a little bit. I mean, I don't know who has the right to do anything on Bond films, but do you want my take on it? Go for it. I was relieved that they blew Bond up. Oh, wow. I was like, great. This old man is dead. And I think, in my opinion, the ending left itself open very well to a new Bond, potentially even um, a female Bond. Mm. And I was like, okay, I mean, Daniel Craig's been in like 10 Bond films. Like, it's about time he died anyway. I know it, this is probably sacrilegious to Bond fans like yourself, but from a person who's just going and watching, I'm like, okay, he's he's dead, time for the next one. And I'm excited. I want to watch a new Bond film and I hope it's a woman or Idris Elba. Well, obviously there's been a lot of chat online about who the next one, and I won't go into that because we could be here for another hour, but um, the, 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 um, the character Nomi. So, okay, here's, this was some things that I was okay with. Normally you would be a little bit pissed off about this, but they sort of, it was a very traditional Bond film in some senses, and there were some lovely nods to the past, but also it kind of, uh, it, it, it tore some norms up as well. Um, first of all, Bond dies, pretty big norm. Uh, two, there's another 007 in Nomi's character. Yeah, right? that was cool. Yep. Um, Felix Leiter, the CIA agent, also dies. Um, I made a list of all of these norms. Where are they? Um, yeah, I mean, they're the sort of the, the, the main ones that I can that I can think of. Uh, Bond in retirement doesn't happen. Oh, Bond has a child, <laughs> another one. Like... Um, there was a lot of things in here that sort of said, oh, we're going to turn this a bit upside down. And as I was watching it, I was like, going, oh, okay, I don't mind that. We don't always have to stick to type, right? That's okay to throw in new things. But just the, the Bond dying at the end and the mechanism upon which he did die, why did the rockets have to come then? What was the hurry? Why did we need to do that? I don't understand that. That, was, that, was, that wasn't necessary. You could have written, that needs, if you're going to kill the man, make sure that fucking plot is absolutely tight. So you understand the urgency and that there's, you go, shit, there's no way out. And it just was just the way it was happening. I was like, ah, oh, don't tell me they're going to kill him. This is because this is badly done. And when it happened, I was just devastated. It's all a bit much. It was. And I went well, back. The, the thing that, it, I mean, it goes back to the chemistry with Madeline Swan, right? So he loves her so much. He wants to save her and his daughter. And he ends up dying, but because you didn't, be- I didn't believe that the chemistry between them, or the romance between them, or the love between them was real. I was like, well, he's an idiot, then it's me. You know, I just wasn't that invested. Look, 
And everyone thought that the chemistry between him and Eva Green and Casino Royale was exactly the sweet spot that you needed it to be. Because Bond in the end, if you read the books, Bond's a prick. He's a misogynistic, ancient, you know, dirtbag, right? Um, who doesn't give a stuff about other human beings really, but is there to do it. He's a, he's a blunt instrument. He's there to do a job for, um, for MI, MI6. Um, but he falls for Eva Green and sort of, you know, this armour that he has slowly gets unravelled and you see that in Casino Royale and it works quite well. And then he, I won't tell you what happens in a Casino Royale, but then he then decides, well, I'm not doing that again. You know, that was stupid, that whole love thing, that's ridiculous. So I'll just go back to just being a blunt instrument and treating women with, you know, as if they're just an object. Um, so in order for him to unravel again, there has to be a pretty good reason, I think, and I don't think that the character of Madeline Swan achieved that on screen, the writing on screen. The only time I realised that she cared for him was when it was too late and they're in the, she's dead, so he's dead, and they're in the car with... She's in the car with their daughter... And she says to her, uh, I want to tell you about a man. His name was Bond, James Bond. That had gravitas and that had meaning and feeling. Other than that, it just, like you said, you're right. It was a father-daughter relationship. Yeah, it was weird. And it was was, weird. It was weird. Because they got it on and that's wrong. Um, (laughs) It's very wrong. It's just wrong. Um, But I will... I, I tell you what, though, the only time I was impressed by Bond was that scene, one of the scenes at the very beginning when they're in Italy and he has the cool car. The cool car and they're shooting at it and they can't shoot into it and it's one of these fancy gadgets. I was into that. Oh, yeah. Who was it? And then I, I mean, I was like, that's cool. I want one of those. And Aston Martin DB5. And my partner's looking in during the film knowing full well that I am just absolutely, you know, and she's like, I could, I could feel her eyes rolling at me in the darkness as that scene's happening. Cause I'm literally, I, if I could stand up and just clap as that whole scene's happening, I, I would. Yeah, absolutely. That was so great. The sound of the guns pounding the bulletproof window as he's looking at her saying, you right. ran it, you ran it on me. And I am, I'm not, I don't even need to say anything. I'm just pissed off. And then it's like, all right, fine. And then, you know, oh, brilliant. Right. The music. What did you think about the music? Yeah, the um, the sound was really good. I, I, I can't remember the music specifically. The sound was really good. You know, when things blow up and it goes all quiet, the sound was really good. Yeah. Billie Eilish did the No Time to Die opening credits, which I really like. I really like her. But, I mean, all Bond theme music sounds the same. Like, it's the same as Skyfall, right? We're not talking about a huge variance. Music is Skyfall the one Adele did? Yeah, it is. I think since Skyfall, uh, Spectre, and No Time to Die, the definitely the three songs, um, Adele, Sam Smith, and Billy Arch, have been very similar. But if you go back and listen to all of them, they you know, it started in the 60s for God's sake, so the music has changed a lot. But yes, it's got a similar kind of slow, drawn out, brassy kind Mm. of feel, but great, well used, I thought, out on the platform at the train station to introduce that song. Yeah, that was good. Hans Zimmer um, did the score, um, which is new. Uh, First time he's ever done a Bond film. They tend to use similar composers, um, but that was his first crack at it. I thought it was reasonably good. There were some nice moments. He brought back some sort of older um, um, Bond pieces in certain moments throughout the the film. And they also used um, Louis Armstrong's um, We Have All the Time in the World, which was used on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is the George Lazenby 
film from 1967. Um, and uh, obviously the Bond theme was used when he goes and picks up the um, Aston Martin um, V8 Vantage in London, mm. the 1980s one that Timothy Dalton used and that was pretty cool. Obviously the gadgets were pretty cool. Did you notice, obviously you noted the one in um, Matera in Italy with the guns coming out of the um, DB5. What else did I notice? His Amiga watch was a gadget that blew up. Remember he used it on oh, the yeah, guy's the eyeballs? The eyeball stuff was great. Yeah. I caught on to that super fast, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Do you think we're trained sort of from a young age for men to be obsessed with the gadgets and for me to be obsessed with what Paloma was wearing? I don't know. Um, but I definitely paid much more attention to um, the clothes that they're wearing, <laughs> the wearing than the gadgets besides from the car. There is a, um, there's an Instagram account that is, um, that puts up a post a day and breaks down what the clothes of all the main characters wear in, um, yeah, both um, the um, female and male actors. So if you ever want to sort of work out what dress Paloma wore, you can, I'll send it to you. I'm going to look about that. Okay. Um, before we wrap up the bond, um, any social Democrats in this show? Um, yeah. Money penny, right? Yeah. They're pu- and Q, they're both public servants. I feel like they're definitely in the union and yeah. most likely would vote labor. I mean, they're working to save their country, save the world. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. Money penny and Q, I guess. Bond, what do you, what's Bond? Oh, he'd be an absolute Tory, without a doubt. He may even what be a man. Of, what kind of Tory, though? He, he would be a, uh, he would be, he would, he would be a Remainer. I think he believes in Europe. I don't think he would vote Brexit. Like a David Cameron situation? Yeah, old school Tory. Old school okay. Tory. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Um, of course, Sean Connery, who played James Bond, um, was a major um, Scottish nationalist and would um, had put a lot of money into supporting this SNP. So, Sean Connery got cancelled, right? He was a bad man. Uh, he should have got cancelled. I think he died before he got a chance to get cancelled. Okay, yeah. lucky him. Yeah, Pierce Brosnan's Irish, and he's definitely um, you know he's a fellow traveller. He's a Republican. Oh, I love Pierce Brosnan. Um, George Lazenby is an Australian and uh, who knows what he thinks. <laughs> Timothy Dalton's Welsh. Isn't it amazing? So many of them have been played by people who actually aren't English. Anyway, another weird fact. All right, let's move on because this has turned into a monster podcast. Uh, <laughs> it's too long. No, it's good. It's good. I'm all bad. We're going to fire through these yeah, yeah. at the end. What are your recommendations for folks over the summer? Okay. Um, over the summer, thinking about the things that I really liked watching this year, Hacks on Stan which is old generation female comedian, millennial writer, set in Vegas, LA. Um, it is hilarious, a little bit dark, but very, very funny. Meg Stolter's in it, who I find absolutely hilarious. Um, she's the assistant to the talent agent. Um, we've been talking so much. Did you have something to say about Hacks? Yeah, I do. I've got a theory about Hacks. Because it's on mm-hmm. HBO in the US, if the original, the, 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 the root of this genre of TV show starts with Sex and the City. Sex and the City is the original and it's the New York version. Entourage then becomes the male version of Sex and the City. 
then Ballers becomes the sporting version of Entourage and then Hacks becomes the female comic version of Ballers. It's just they're just recycling the same. I haven't seen Ballers, but that sounds legitimate to me. Hmm. That's my theory. I think who's, well, who's the main actress in it? Oh, my gosh, I've forgotten her name. Jean. Anyway, old school. She was in um, Mayor of Easttown as well and she's incredible. And she was big in the 80s. And huge in the 80s. I should have looked this up. Anyway, it's a great, great story. Um, short, I think, as well, 10 episodes. Yep, no mucking around. Um, <laughs> then we've talking so much about – talking, talked so talking, much about – we'll Talking, we're talking. Um, Jane's wealth, Wealthy people, something talking about the complete opposite um, was made on Netflix. So a, real, a young woman um, escaping an abusive, violent relationship has absolutely no money in the bank, nowhere to go, no help, and she becomes a cleaner. And it's based on a book. It's pretty dark. Um, it's a drama. I really, really enjoyed that. It was really fascinating. I've not seen it. You should watch it. Mm. It's a bit grim, so it's not exactly a, a fun summer holiday watch, but find time for it because I think it's really important. I think it really goes to demonstrating how hard it is to leave an abusive relationship and how hard it is to end the cycle of poverty in mm. in, a, in, a, in a relatable way. Yeah. And it's the first time I've seen something that really goes to just how difficult it is and how you can have no money and be really stuck. Um, what else? I've been watching the um, short film by Taylor Swift, her 10-minute version of All Too Well on repeat. You can find that on YouTube. I loved it. thought it was amazing. I'm not going to say any more about that. I assume you haven't seen it, Stephen. No, I have not. Um, I'd recommend it. I think you should do – you could do a Taylor Swift discovery yeah. this summer. I don't mind the music. I'm, I'm into it. Good. Um, and finally for me, Christmas movie recommendations – Given how much we love New York and all things set in New York, Home Alone 2, ultimate Christmas movie. Plus for me, love actually has a sentimental value. Love the soundtrack. Love the characters. Um, love Hugh Grant. Love a good stalker film. <laughs> well, yeah. Let's just gloss over that. All right, what are your recs? Uh, my two non-Christmas ones are uh, The Great, which is on Hulu uh, in the States, or Stan here in Australia. It's a satirical drama loosely, and I stress loosely based on the rise of Catherine the Great, Russia's longest-serving monarch, and it stars Al Fanning, who was in Super 8 as Catherine II, and Nicholas Hout, or Holt plays um, Peter Third, I think. I'm testing my Russian history there. Uh, who was in About a Boy. And I think it was in other things as well, but I've not seen them. More contemporary. Kevin Skin. That's the one. Thank you. I knew you were going to know that. UK TV show. Yep. Season one came out last year. Season two has just dropped and they dropped all 10 episodes. So you can just binge them whenever you like. Um, and it is funny. It's um, obviously set as a period drama, but the dialogue is modern. So don't watch it with your mum. There's a lot of swearing and and there's a lot of sex in it as well, so just be conscious of that. But it's very, very funny and it's sharp and witty and I love it. I love it a lot. Um, when it ended, when season one ended, I was like, oh, I want to watch the next one. So it's just come out, so I'm very excited about that. Second one, a bit more for your mum, Ridley Road, which is on BBC One and ABC iView. It's a four-part historical period drama series set in the 1960s about the London Jewish community and its uh, fight or uh, against or its resistance uh, movement against the rise of anti-Semitism in Britain. 
um, could also be about um, Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labor Party, but let's not go there. Um, and I think uh, it's a great period drama and it's based on a true story, um, apart from the characters. Um, aren't, the actual characters are dramatised, but the actual story itself is um, um, really interesting and also kind of contemporary because we are seeing the rise of both fascism and anti-Semitism and right-wing nut jobs today. So it can just show you that it doesn't have to be born out of some kind of, um, you know, shitstorm. It can actually just be, be, be born because people are Nazis. Um, and my two Christmas recommendations are the greatest Christmas movie of all time, Die Hard, and um, my favourite Christmas TV episode of a series, which is season one, episode 13 of The OC. This is for you, Tess Farrell. The best Christmaker ever. The super holiday drawing on the best of Christianity and Judaism has to offer from the OC. What, Christmaker, what an iconic moment. What an iconic moment for many, many people. And I love the OC. I think I rewatched that last year, not this year. But I will say on Binge and on Stan, if you type in Christmas, a lot of they have a whole section that adjusts the Christmas episodes of your favourite TV shows. Oh, that is so like cool. The, the Christmas episodes of the OC, the Christmas episodes of The Office. Um, so, you know, you don't have to watch the whole series. They'll just select the Christmas episodes of your old school favourite TV shows. That's smart. I like that. It is. The algorithm at work. Very good. And we've been at work. What, a, what, a, what, a, what an effort, Tess Farrell today. I wonder when we lose people. I know. <laughs> well, you and I are both going to a, uh, a wedding on the weekend um, of uh, mutual friends. We'll find out. We will find out. Once they've and, had a couple um, of drinks in them. Oh, that podcast like, you guys did this week. Honestly, God, I, I dropped out after 43 minutes. I couldn't do any more than that. Yeah, and I'll be following up um, Premier Dan Andrews to see uh, how far he made it. I'm sure he'll make it to the end. I'm sure he will. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time and your insights today. As always, it was a journey and I loved every moment of it and I want to wish you and your family a um, joyful, festive period. Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas and everything else in between. Yes. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Happy holidays. I hope you have a good summer yeah. and everyone else assisting. Indeed. Cheerio. Bye. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.